It's another day here at the Comeback Team Studios. This is your host, Beck Lover, and I have a very special guest today. His name is Anthony Russo, also known as Hootie. He ran with some of the biggest figures in organized crime. He ran with the Gambinos. He did business with a lot of the other families. And he's here today to talk about his life, how he got into crime, how he got out of crime, and why he is trying to use his experiences to steer people away from that life and towards a better life. Anthony, welcome, brother. How you doing? All right, thanks for having me. I want to thank you for taking time out. Uh, there's nothing more valuable in life that you can give someone than time. So I hear. There's nothing you can get back. And I'm pretty sure when you are incarcerated, that probably becomes even more clear about how valuable time is, right? I mean, that's why it's like a punishment. I'm putting you away for X amount of years because there's nothing more valuable than time. I mean, would you agree? Absolutely. That's why they take it away from you. What's the why most important thing? They find the most important thing to you and they take it away from you. So they feel one thing everybody's got in common is nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. So time is the most important to every human being. Anthony, you've lived an extraordinary life. Uh, I caught bits and pieces uh, of your interview with uh, Gene Barello and John A. Light. These are two guys that um, brought you on their show. Their show is awesome. They're doing a great job. They're interviewing some really amazing people and uh, telling their stories and experiences. Uh, where does your life start, man? I mean, where were you born? What's your family background? You know, give us a little bit well, of the, 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 you know, the, the, you know, the, basically how your life started. Well, I'm first generation uh, Sicilian American, come from immigrant parents. Uh, I never learned the language. My uh, parents believed in the American dream. And back then, uh, they didn't teach your kids how to speak their native tongue. You spoke the language, the country that you lived in. How uh, today is, it's opposite. Because uh, back then, they got a lot of scrutiny, a lot of problems being immigrants and, you know, called a lot of names and, you know, always last in line for jobs. Things were a lot different back then. You know, my father came over on a boat, actually. And uh, even all his siblings never taught their kids how to speak the language. Everybody spoke American. Um, it was always something I wanted to learn, but I was too busy in the streets, like I said. You know, my parents, uh, my father got sick when I was young. My mother died when I was young, so I was kind of on my own from, from there on in. Uh, my around mother... What age? Around what age, Anthony? What, what age were you when, when he passed? Sorry if you lost. My, fa uh, my mother was 13, and my father got sick maybe a year or two later after that. So mostly I was on my own since I was 14, because even, you know, the last years of his life, I took care of him. You know, he couldn't work. He got diagnosed with emphysema and uh, COPD. So, you know, he was a master mechanic. He worked a lot of uh, carpentry and he just couldn't do that work anymore. So I was already in the streets. At the age of 14, so you just, were basically on your own, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was on my own even before that, but when it, real got, when it really got serious, I was 14, paying my own rent, paying my father's rent, taking care of my younger sister and things like that. How did you, what did you do for work? at the age of 14 what were you doing back then well i was already into selling drugs and running numbers uh i just got into sports a little bit i really wasn't uh too entwined in that life yet the bookmaking life uh, like i said i first started out um i was running numbers at five for uh actually you know you had gene brillo on his his boss's boss which was vinnie asara at the time he was the biggest gangster in my neighborhood uh back then 
Uh, he was a lot older, so uh, he was a Bonanno. And uh, he had a place in City Line where I'm from. That's like the borderline between East New York and Ozone Park. And I would run football sheets or number sheets down from City Line, Liberty Avenue down to 101st Avenue to another club or to another person. Uh, fireworks. Everybody, I mean, everybody got involved with fireworks. This was at five. You know what I mean? Like, so was, give me give me one second. Let, let's let's harp on this for one moment. You grew up in the Ozone Park area, more towards the East New York area, but Ozone Park. Yeah, it was the beginning. East New York, Pennsylvania Avenue, that area. A little closer in, like it's called City Line Crescent, Liberty, Autumn, Lincoln, that part of East New York. Okay, you're on the basically on the border with Queens, and you're on the Brooklyn side of that border. Yeah, absolutely. So you grew up there at the age of four. So schooling, from what it sounds like, you never really had a chance for education. Like that was, was no. that something that you wanted or you feel that life yeah. you out of? I never missed it. I went every day. I didn't have a problem with school. Uh, after a while with the fights and all the trouble I was getting in, I was put into special classes. But because of my grades, um, it kind of, it was a little different. It was like I could go to class and I could get, the proper education, but if I got into fights or any trouble, they couldn't suspend me. They couldn't throw me out because I was considered, you know, a problem child. Uh, but I passed all that test and everything they tried to give me to say that I was crazy or I belonged in special programs. So they couldn't do that to me. So uh, I had like a, a resource room, it was called, and I'd have to go to that once a day and check in with them. And then I would go to my classes. Uh, I even did a semester of college. I was very much into school. I wanted to learn. Uh, I had a lot of mentors growing up in certain areas. And, you know, even a lot of street guys, a lot of made guys would tell me, listen, get two educations. Go to school, learn everything you can there, and learn everything you can on the streets. Because there was a lot of people that seen me at a young age that knew this is what I was about, the street life. I wasn't faking it. I wasn't a wannabe. I was in there. I was doing it. I was doing dirt. You know, I was putting my work in. Uh, when I got actually finally got involved with organized crime, I, I came in at the top. There was no starting out running numbers or picking up dry cleaning or becoming somebody's driver. I answered to one guy, and at that time was my friend Alphonse Shukio's father, Ronnie Wanoff. You know, and Al was a guy, and I didn't even answer to him. I mean, me and his father, we considered each other friends because there was times when guys had went up to Al and asked him, you know, if I was with him. And he says, no, he's not with me, but he's friends with my father. So, you know, I did a lot of favors for Ronnie, so which gave me a lot thing. of leadway. Um, always assume that, you know, people that are watching or listening, they might not know exactly who's who and what's what and what family. Man. So Ronnie went on was a part of what family? The Gambino family. So there was five families in New York City, for those of you that are not familiar with mob or mafia history, as they called it. Um, and he was what level uh, member? He made it all the way up to captain. He and started out when I, when I knew him as a young kid at 13. Well, he had just got straightened out, and he was a regular made guy. But before he was even straightened out, they treated him. He was a feared guy in my neighborhood, so they treated him like he was a wise guy. Even down in the areas where I was selling crack and coke, the Spanish and the blacks, they all paid him respect and, you know, a lot of guys kicked up to him. A lot of guys, you know, cleared out the corner. He was a big guy with clearing out the corners. Didn't want his guys hanging out in the corner. He would drive to the borderline, make a U-turn, get all the guys off the corner, and go back down 101st Avenue, where usually he extorted, like, any stores that weren't Italian. 
if they were Korean, you know, any Asians, any uh, Muslims, Middle Easterns, they all had to pay protection back then. And that was his, that was his gig. Like I, after Vinny Sarah had moved his club and moved on in the early nineties, Ronnie Trucchio one on became the guy he, and he was the most feared guy in there. Anywhere he went, he had a reputation for being violent, doing violence, uh, earning. And, uh, that's, those are the guys I wanted to be like. And like I said, on Gene's show, I look at John as like a mentor, even though we weren't on the same side, because at one point, you know, we were against Howard Beach and the Gotties and those guys, even before I hooked up with Ronnie and them. That's how the whole story starts, where I do get involved with them. And uh, I liked his style. You know, he was an earner. He was a straight up, you know, he was a shooter. There was no doubt about it. Probably one of the most feared shooters in the city at the time. That's no bullshit. You know, I know a lot of people write stories about Dick riding. I don't need no, to talking about You're out. talking about John Avery. You're talking about John Avery, right? John yeah. Avery. Yeah, we weren't so friends you definitely, in the street. You weren't friends, but you knew who he was. I mean, you know his Absolutely. name, you knew who he was. I respected his game. I knew him as a kid because going back even before that, him and Ronnie one-on were best friends at the time before Ronnie got made. John was Albanian, Ronnie was Italian. So I'm pretty sure if John was Albanian at the time, if he was Italian, excuse me, they probably would have got made at the same time. So what happens is when a guy's hanging around another guy that's an earner and a street guy, and that guy gets made, usually the guys he's hanging around get put with other crews. And at that point, A-Light got put with the Gotties. So now he's hanging around the Gotties, and, you know, Ronnie's building, Ronnie's a little bit older than A-Light, and A-Light's a little bit older than me. So they used to have a bar called P&M Pub that was on 101st Avenue in Ozone Park. It was a crazy place. Like, I was, you know, when people used to cross the street when they used to walk by, it was just, someone was always getting shot, stabbed, beat up. It was, a, it was a bad place. Between Ronnie and A-Light, it was, it was a duo that you didn't, never wanted to mess with. These guys were out of control. You know what I mean? And uh, like I said, me and A-Light weren't friends in the street. I respected his game. Uh, he was ahead of his – he was ahead of his time and old school at the same time. He was doing things that guys were doing 30 years before him that guys weren't doing in his era, you know, walking up to people in broad daylight and shooting them. But like I said, I'm not, you know, one here like – People posting things about dick ride and things. I just tell the truth. I was in the drug game. I was shaking people down. I was in the extortion game. And he was one of the guys. And I was a type of guy that wasn't going to get chased out of his neighborhood. So if it ever came down to it, it would have been me or him. And most likely, it probably would have been me because he had more practice at it. He was more cunning. You know, guys had sat on him. Guys had set him up. He outwitted them. And, you know, so it would have probably been harder for me because he was much more seasoned than I was. Uh, I talk about on one of the shows, I had to sit down with him in Atlantic City when I was young. And, you know, I had a shooter with me. I brought a guy with me with the ratchet. I didn't want to, you know, go alone. I didn't know if he was going to have guys. And uh, it was an old beef over one of my ex-brother-in-laws. And it was just the craziest thing. He had me sending for made guys and captains and, I never heard a guy talk like that that wasn't made. And this is like the first time I really had any interactions with him. And he's like, send for this guy, send for that guy. Tell this guy I want to see them. And everybody he named was a made guy. And I'm like, this guy's nuts. I'm not going to go talk to a made guy, tell a guy he, that this guy wants to see him. Those things didn't happen like that back then when I first came up. Nowadays, it's all watered down. It doesn't even matter. After a while, sit-downs is when you go meet people to discuss a problem 
or a business venture. And I was eventually going for sit downs with guys that were sitting on committees and skippers and things that I should have never have done because I wasn't a May guy and I really wasn't involved in that yet. So at 18, I'm running with this crazy crew from 88 Park. That was like one of the last crews in Ozone Park that tried to keep the neighborhood nice. And that's where the Ruggianos come in because that was Fat Andy's Park, which his son Albert at the time, Anthony's older brother, ran that park. And uh, I wound up coming up with that crew. And that's where I first seen John as a kid before the P&M pub situation. That's where John was from because he hung around the Ruggianos. And then I wind up hooking up with some guys. Everybody I hung out with was pretty much seven, eight years older than me. So I learned a lot, you know, fighting, uh, good restaurants to eat in, book, uh, to where I learned how to do bookmaking. I was out of the drug game for a little while at that point. Uh, we had a big, good, big crew, and Howard Beach hated us because we were the street guys that hung around their uncles and fathers and cousins, and we were with those guys because the office that I worked for was a Nicky Carrazzo office. And uh, those guys loved us because we were just regular street guys. We weren't born into the life, you know what I mean? We weren't, we were just, like I said, hanging in the streets. And uh, we would fight with Howard Beach constantly, the Gaudis, the Gambinos. And one time it got really, really bad. You know, a lot of guys from Howard Beach came down. Uh, it was a lot more than them than us. They got hurt really bad. Uh, but why were you guys, guys fighting? I mean, aren't you guys all working together? Like, I've interviewed other former uh, gangsters and mafia people. They said that basically the families would get along for the most part, work together, do business. I mean, so what was the beef? I don't understand. Why, why were you guys having so much hostility? Wasn't that bad for business? Well, like in Ozone Park, there was all five families between Ozone Park and Howard Beach. And uh, there was never such thing called territory. Like, uh, you can have a guy. Right. And he's got the power to open up a strip club. Now, my guy has the girls. Your guy doesn't. So they come together and they form a partnership. He's going to open the club and I'm going to provide the girls. But I'm with a Gambino and you're with a Banano. So now it doesn't go by territory where the club is, where it's located. In that life, it goes who's with who. With drug dealers, with what wise guy. With bookmakers, with what wise guy what gambling joints with what wise guy. It was never territories, like how they show you movies, this area, part of Brooklyn is mine, this part. Of, it was never like that. It was always what guys were with who, what gamble is, what guys with good sheets, what guys that could bring guys to card games, good extortion guys, guys that borrowed money. So like that is how marriages were formed between the Gambinos and the Bananos. You would have the club, I would have the girls, I was with the Gambinos, you with the Bananos, I'd have to bring my guy in, you'd have to bring your guy in, they'd be introduced, and that's where a partnership would start. But back in the day, Ozo Park and Howard Beach, like the oldest feud, went back probably two generations before me. Guys from Ozo Park never went into Howard Beach, and guys from Howard Beach never came into Ozo Park, unless there was a fight, or they were jumping somebody, or somebody's girlfriend, it was always things like that. In my era, it finally got to put to bed. We got into a real bad fight one night. A lot of their guys got hurt. And uh, John Gotti's youngest brother, Peter Gotti, he was like the leader of all of them. And he winds up sending, well, asking for one of the guys that ran the office with me, worked for Nikki. He was a regular street guy, not a Howell Beach guy, or in the life, in that sense. And uh, we wind up going down to his Uncle Richie's club on 101st Avenue, which is around the corner from the Bergen, his father's old club. 
And uh, me and him go down there to represent Ozone Park. And we sit down with him and he was like, listen, this has all got to stop. We're all Italian. We're all, you know, same neighborhood, the same guys. Use are not related, but use around my uncles and, you know, fathers and, you know, things like that. We shouldn't be doing this. You know, all we're doing is hurting each other. And at 18, that's, you know, back in the early 90s, where the Howard Beach and Ozone Park relationship formed. And then there was no more problems between Ozone Park and Howard Beach. We would go into Howard Beach. Howard Beach would come into ours. We'd hang out at their social clubs. They'd hang out at our social clubs. And we formed a good relationship after that. I got very close with the Gottis for a long time. And that's where I met Alphonse Truccio and Michael Roccaforte. They were friends of Peter that would come by the club. They weren't made guys yet. They were regular neighborhood kids. And, uh, of course, Al was the guy that I wanted to be with son at the time, which I had no idea that he had a son my age. Uh, I used to form football teams and basketball teams and softball teams, and they knew that. And I kind of put them together. I brought them guys on. So I had the guys from Howard Beach playing on with the guys from Ozone Park against other neighborhoods. And we all became friends. I introduced them to kids from where I grew up. And I wound up hanging out in Howard Beach, meeting some of their friends. And we formed a good relationship. Wind up forming a great crew because eventually those guys we knew were going to be made. You know, they were into some, you know, bookmaking and things like that. I was a drug dealer. They kind of frowned upon that but I was also on the bookmaking side of things also. So Al was the first to go. He gets married. He winds up opening up a successful bookmaking office, winds up doing phenomenal. He winds up getting straightened out. He's the first one. Uh, at the time, now me and Rock are doing major business with the marijuana. Uh, we got a connection. So what, what, yeah, what, what, I mean, what were you selling? What were you pushing? What was your predominant? I mean, were you selling all kinds of drugs? I mean, what, what were you selling? The first, my first drug of choice to sell was crack cocaine. I would cook cocaine and sell crack in East New York. That was like, I grew up right during the crack era and I started selling it at the tail end, which was like one of the biggest money makers around. I really wasn't into the marijuana yet until I started going to high school. Uh, I think I started selling 11 years old. I was selling crack. Uh, acid, mescaline, we used to sell that stuff too also when I was 11, but mainly crack. And then when I started moving in, to other parts of the neighborhood and meeting other people, I would sell it raw, which was cocaine, you know, eight balls and ounces. And I moved my way up like that. Uh, well, I, I, I mean, you were speaking off the record once when I was 19, I went to Mexico looking for a connect, a cartel connect. Uh, this was actually maybe five, six years after Pablo was killed. And I'm in Mexico, no passport, got, you know, walked over the border, guys got me in. Uh, Where were you in uh, 50,000. I was close to uh, Juarez. I don't know if you're familiar with that, which is a very, very... Yeah, at the yeah, time, I knew it was a bad area. And uh, thank God somebody had stopped me. They were like, listen, the cops don't even go in there. They would call me a gringo. You know what I mean? Like gringo, meaning like white guy, you know? And I just didn't belong there. You know what I mean? I had a Yankee fitted on backwards and Tim's with, you know, construction pants on. And uh, I was looking for a connect. I was just like, this is what I want to do. You know, and if I'm going to spend 10 years in jail, I might as well do it pushing keys. You know, I've seen guys back in 89, you know, on corners making 25, 30,000 a day for one corner. So I'm like, I'm like, this is where I belong. But I had this vision that if you were a street guy and you were Italian, you had to be a gangster. I never separated the two. 
I think if I would have separated the two at a young age, I would have stood a street guy. I would have never went into the life. Because there was a time when Rock got out of the drug game and got into the extortion game with loaning money out when Al pulled him over and he was about to get straightened out at the time. He told him, get out of the drug game. It's dirty. Come over and do this. And he told me, listen, leave it, come over, and eventually, you know, hopefully if you do the right thing, you know, you could be straightened out one day. So I said, oh, you know, that's, you know, growing up, listen, you talk about it, being made, getting straightened out, running with a crew. These are things when we're kids, the kids I grow, the things you discuss, like how people discuss wanting to become a ball player. I didn't want to be anything else but a street guy my whole life. Regardless that I went to school, regardless I wanted to learn, I wanted to know things. Nothing ever crossed my mind but being a street guy. If you ask me today what I want to be, I couldn't even tell you. I never wanted to be anything but a street guy. You know, I go to work now. I get up every day. I put my eight hours in. I come home. I grind out a paycheck. That's what I do today. First time in 40 years. You know, I've always had a union job. You know, at 14, I'm working with the Teamsters at the Javits Center. I had a hookup that got me in just to have a legitimate job. I'm selling drugs on the job at 14, you know, to all the guys, all the workers trying to stay up. Feeding them how cocaine. long were you? How long were you in crime? How many years are we talking? Well, like I said, I ran my first football slip when I was five, about 37, 38 years ago. You know, and that was something I didn't know about when I first got into the feds. I was in the box, 2011. They held a hearing called career criminal, which I didn't know the feds did, and they prosecuted the AUSA tried to prove that I was a career criminal. So my charge goes from a 10-year mandatory minimum to my mandatory minimum is 20 years. You get convicted of career criminal. So you start right off the bat before you're even indicted, before you're even convicted, 20 years mandatory minimum. You get convicted on career criminal, which that was probably the only thing I didn't know about when I went into the feds. And that like blindsided me. I was in the box for like a week. I was just taken off the street. I wasn't in life for three years before they picked me up because I just got done doing two years. I was on post supervision, so I was kind of out of the life. I was I wasn't selling drugs, and I really was just hanging out with these guys, going to dinner, doing things like that. I really wasn't involved in the day to day business anymore. I was waiting till I finished parole. I just happened to get off in 2010, and I started setting up some bookmaking stuff. I was out of the drug game because I just had got pinched. Like I said, two years prior, I did two years upstate. Can you talk so, about any of that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I had produced tax returns that I've worked my whole life besides being in the street and the judge accepted it. And I got the, the career criminal thrown out. They won not giving me bail because you know, they weren't going to give me bold. So I wound up beating the career criminal and I wound up getting no bail. So I went back to the box. I spent another three weeks in the box and that was what blindsided me was that career criminal, which actually I had gotten a lot of trouble my first year at home. And that actually came back to help me. We'll talk about that later. But uh, getting back to that was uh, a guy beat Rock for 100000 on the street. Uh, it was Al's money. He was away in jail. And Rock was running his bookmaking office for him. Wasn't making a dollar. Was putting all the money away for Al. Was collecting just his Shylock money. That's what he used to do. And uh, they come to me with this opportunity. The guy was uh, part of the, his brother was a Lucchese May guy. And they wanted their money. This guy was a deadbeat. And uh, somehow he was able to get Rock's cash through somebody else that knew where Rock's money was. And he bent it up. Didn't know that it came from Rock, who at the time was a mate guy with the Gambinos. 
So he couldn't be anywhere near this guy because this guy was known for being a beat artist and a drug dealer. So he comes to me and he says, listen, I got a guy you could probably make money with, but I got to get my money back first. He's into pharmaceuticals. This is the first time I was ever introduced to pharmaceuticals. At this point, there was no Oxys or Roxys. It was just Vicodin at the time. So I says, yeah, I says, I got no problem collecting your money because that's what I did. Whenever they had problems collecting money, most of the time it was from drug dealers, they would send me. So I went, I met the guy. He was a weasel, but I knew his brother he was a mega out of the case. He had a lot of respect, did a lot of time. He had passed away by now. He's dead now. He passed away a while back. But uh, so I said, yeah, I'll do it with you. So he was supposed to give me a certain amount of pills a week. I would sell the pills. I would take my end and give the balance to Rock to pay back the 100000 Each move is supposed to be five grand towards Rock and whatever I made. Now, this is the first time I've ever got into pharmaceuticals. Now, this guy's, we're dealing about between twenty-seven and 30,000 pills a week. Now, this you're the early 2000s? Early, early 2000s? 2000s. Early 2000s. It was big back then, Vikings, I remember. Huge, huge. Nobody had them. Nobody was doing, like I said, there was no Percocets. There was no Oxys yet. Oxys weren't even a. How was how was yet. how were you guys getting them? How were you getting the pills? Where he was dealing with pharmacy, he was dealing with pharmacists. This guy, I had no uh, idea what he was doing. I found this, yeah, I found this out later on because I tried to go later on and get them from Mexico and Canada because I knew they were pressing them there, especially in Canada, because it wound up being a huge business. But when I came home from jail, it was an epidemic, and it was like no way. Like the guys were getting hit with eight to ten years for the same thing that I did two years for because they really didn't know about it at the time. So what I did was I went to the president of a drug rehabilitation center. This guy was the president of a drug. And I brought him the pills. I says, what are these things? What can I do with them? I had no clue. And this guy was like, listen, I'll take whatever you can get. Now, this is the president of a drug rehabilitation center. <laughs> Insane. Who actually helped me out on one of my cases. <laughs> so he goes, I, I I'll take, the, I'll take whatever you can yeah, what he's he like, whatever you get, for, just you? bring me. What happened was, I'm to find out later on, he had connections with the Hells Angels and the Pagans, and he would give them to the bikers, as many as I can get. So, I, would, I mean, at this point, I wasn't thinking. This guy already had somebody. This kid up and quit a New York City job, civil servants, moved to the worst place in the world to make money, which was Nevada, Las Vegas, was selling 30,000 pills a week on top of whatever else. And this kid just disappeared. I never looked into this until afterwards to find out the kid went bad. And he gave, probably gave this guy up and got out of town. Who gives up a civil servant shop to go work in Vegas where there's no work? You know what I mean? But this stuff I put together later on after I got pinched. So now we get about 11-month run. I'm dealing straight with one guy. I'm picking up the pills. Never doing business by my house. Somewhere in Brooklyn. Somewhere in Lindawood. Somewhere like that. Jamaica Avenue, Woodhaven. I'd pick up a bag of pills, meet another guy 20 minutes later down Woodhaven Boulevard, which was this guy. He would take the pills, and the next time I would give him two money off. And then the next time he'd come around, he'd pay me for the first batch, and I'd give him another batch. I'd pay back. The, we got the 100000 back in no time. And uh, at the end, I think it was 5000 due. It was the last 5000 payment. Al just came home from jail because we all got pinched on a bookmaking case. Back in 0203. Uh, I did a 6'5. He did a 1-3. Kid Frankie Boy did a 1-3 that had passed away. We spoke about him. A couple other guys did 1-3s. Uh, Ronnie had got convicted on that case. He was going away for a 1-3. 
but he was going away later on because he was getting. <clears> so what? The the government came in and rounded you up? Was it the feds? Was no, it the state? I mean, it was uh, OC in the state. It's called enterprise corruption, which is Rico in the state, which we had got pinched on in '03. So I kind of knew what it was. How many guys? It's insane. Uh, on which case? That the bookmaker case. Yeah, the bookmaker. Uh, How many guys? Oh, uh, there was a ton of us. Sheet guys got picked up. Gamblers got picked up. It was a pretty big case at that point. They pinched us in. They came. They came for us in 02. They pinched us in 03. You know, they come first. They gather all the evidence from the office, computers, and things like that. They leave their card and they leave, just like that. They don't lock you up that day. Thirty days, sixty days later, they come. They lock you up. They get the indictment. They bring, I guess, to the grand jury the evidence, and they lock everybody up. I was in the office three weeks. Figure that out. I was in the office three weeks. I got out of the drug game. Rock calls me over. He wasn't involved in the bookmaking, so he doesn't even get pinched on this case. Hmm. Me, Al, Tony, his father, Frankie, but all the guys that were in my crew, five was, plus everybody else. We had about five guys that were in our crew that were really tight. And uh, we get pinched. And I was there three weeks. I can remember because the month before I went to work there, I think we were collecting between like fifty to 100000 a month in drug money. Like we were just making insane money. We were running, like I said, we were running all over the city like we were the princes of the city. We were every Il Molino, Philly. So you had, you had standing tables, every restaurant in Manhattan, every You club. had good money. You had crazy money coming in, right? I mean, what, what yeah, was we your were, average we week were doing like? Insane money. We were doing insane money. For you. Like I said, 10, 20 a week, like 30 a week? At the, at the highest, I was pulling in like 100000 a month. We were making insane money. But like I said, we were gambling. We were out getting custom suits made on Madison Avenue. Every, any new watch that came out, we had it. I've been driving a new car since I'm 17. Every, anybody who knows me knows it ain't bullshit. Whoever's listening, whoever's going to – the people that want to hate, they can say whatever they want, but people know. Any new car that came out, I had it. I bought my first house at 23. You know, I had an extravagant wedding at 23. How would you, how would you wash the money? There's no washing money. That's all bullshit. You don't need to wash money. Unless you're making billions of dollars and doing stupid things like Pablo did and burying it underneath the ground so it turns into mud. There wasn't enough money to make on the streets for guys like us to bury. The way we were spending it, the way we were investing in it. There's so many failed businesses, restaurants, candy stores. We owned a bar at one point. You know, we were silent partners, but giving up the cash up front. There money to put out. There's always money to put out on the street. You got an extra 50000 laying around, it's, boom, you could drop it on the street very easily. Uh, invest in more marijuana, invest in more coke. You know, take, buy pieces of places, card games. Did you use drugs yourself? Were, City. Were, were you, no. Did you, did you indulge? No. Never. No, never. I was the guy that always drove. I didn't drink much. You know, during the holidays or, you know, a nice bottle of Johnny Walker Blue. You know, we'd get into things like that down in Miami or Vegas. Cigars? Smoke cigars. Yeah, he owned a cigar. We owned a cigar shop. We had a cigar place for a while. Uh, but like I said, I mean, there wasn't... I know guys that made four or five million dollars in their lifetime. I think at one point when I was going over my records... By the time I was 30, I think I gambled away three, four million. I was a really wow. bad gambler. Yeah, I gambled so that, everything. That away. was your fix, huh? And yeah, but you know what? I've been on five years. I haven't put one bet in or gambled once in Atlantic would City. Would you go? Where would you go? AC, Vegas? I mean, all of them. Everywhere. Was... I gambled. 
I would fly to Vegas. I remember there was a trial going on in Miami and they couldn't find me. I was in Vegas gambling, just hopped on a plane. What was your favorite casino out there? Back then we had a lot of pull at the Mandalay Bay, Mirage. Uh, Early on, Bellagio wasn't open yet. There was a lot of places that weren't open yet then. Later on, the bigger places, you know, started opening Encore, you know, Cosmopolitan. But those places all came later. But most of the time, it was Mirage, Mandalay Bay. I like to gamble there. But I was a, I was a real, like, every week, Trump property. They gave me credit there. I had $25,000. What, what was your game? It was a blackjack, poker? Blackjack, yeah. I mean, I, I was a better poker player than I was anything, but I didn't have the patience. So I loved to play blackjack. Were you a sports better? I played blackjack for days. Big sports better. Big sports, but I gamble on everything, football, and it's insane because I watch guys that were professional handicappers that couldn't win. Then here I come, not knowing anything about what these guys did, who got hurt, who had surgery, and I'm betting thousands of dollars. Super Bowls, baseball. I mean, we were at every World Series. We were at all the Super Bowls. Like we were living. What we were doing, we were living. Like you know, we they thought when I was running with that crew that we were dope dealers, junk dealers, you know, I mean, heroin, they called junk heroin. And we weren't, you know, Al had a successful bookmaking business. He had a card game that did 30,000 a week. One card game did 30,000 a week. He had a two, $3 million Shylock business that we, you know, each person, I collected one end of it. His brother collected on another end. Frankie boy got rested. So, and Tony, I collected on another end of it. So we could all make money with that. How many guys like were said, in your crew? There was five of us that were tight. And it was crazy because it's the first time you would see a skipper, an acting skipper, and two wise guys all in the same crew. Like, we were closer than being made because it was like they were made. We could do whatever we want. Like, you know, we didn't consider ourselves associates. We considered ourselves friends, all of us. Talking about we'd have three suites at the Trump Marina, three junior suites, our own rooms. And by the end of the night, we'd all be sleeping in the same bed. A wise guy, a skipper, all, we were all in the same bed sleeping. We were, we were friends, you know, we were like big kids. And uh, that's how that life was, you know. And I, I can't talk bad about it because I, choose to live, I chose, excuse me, to leave the life on my own. You know, even, you know they scumbagged me. I didn't make the money I should have made. Uh, they turned their backs on me when I got pinched for drugs, even though I was doing it for them because they didn't want anything to do with drugs. Uh, I got frowned upon, got called a junkie. And these were, these were my friends, you know. I lost my house. Someone had robbed. I left a, a shoebox of money in my room for my wife to pay the bills while I was gone for two years. And nobody told me up until I came home the first week I was gone. They robbed all my Rolexes. They robbed the whole shoebox was full of cash. They robbed it. Uh, it's the first house? time I ever kept money. Somebody close. It wasn't that they hit it. Somebody you know, within the family or friends came in the house, knew where the money was and took it, you know? Now so, you said that they called you guys the princes of the city, right? Yeah, we were just, it was insane. You like going to places like Philippe Chow, which we spoke about. I love that restaurant even to this yeah, day. We practically opened that place. Chicken satay, man, that place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the peanut butter chicken. Listen, we practically opened. We got table. Listen, I remember one night we got a table before Kim Kardashian. She was waiting for a table. There was a guy that opened the place with Mr. Chow. His name was Dave. The guy was, uh, he used to build movie theaters. And he was approached because this guy would come sit down with us when we ate. You know, he was a, he was a regular guy. 
uh, construction work. He was a big in construction. And he said that Mr. Chow came to him with a deal. He was the second in charge of cooking at Mr. Chow's, this guy. And he happened to leave. And he knew this man who was another Asian friend of his. And he said, go into business with me. Put up the money, fix the place up, and I'll be the cook. And this guy, Dave, was, like I said, a construction worker. He used to, move, he used to build movie theaters. And he wound up getting off with Philip Chow. He opened the place up. He told us the whole story one night. And like I said, that's when downstairs was open. We used to see the yeah, mix to there. Those of you, to those of everybody. you who are not from New York and don't know nothing about fine cuisine, Mr. Charles was one of the most expensive Chinese restaurants in the world. Gourmet Chinese food, phenomenal. One of those cooks left there and opened up a place called Philippe's by Chow. Yes. And they and have like a very, very similar menu, but they're very chic. A lot of celebrities go there, movie stars. I go there all the time, even now. Maybe we'll go there one night for dinner. I love that place. There used to be yeah. a downstairs area where they would let you, bro, you could smoke cigarettes, weed, cigars. They didn't give a fuck. Everything. Yeah. And they cracked, they cracked down on them. But that fucking restaurant was amazing, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember one night, it's like I said, I'm watch, we needed uh, the Ovra. The Houston Rockets were playing. It was a late game. The Knicks had played earlier, and they all wind up piling in to Philippe Chow. And Nate Robinson comes over, and he's like, who's winning? And we all look over, and Nate, like, who do you care who's winning? You know? It's like, like, what are you worried about what the Houston Rockets are doing? You know, you just got done <laughs> playing a game for four hours. These guys are rolling in here at midnight. You know, Philip Chow would stay open. They never even had a time. You know, when, somebody, when the last person would leave, they would close, you know? And we were downstairs, like I said, with basketball players, boxes, celebrities. I, mean, I was we down just... there one night, uh, and 50 Cent was having dinner, and we were smoking cigars, and he... Uh, my uncle, God rest his soul, he gave him a cigar. And then one night I was down there, I'm sitting, I looked to my left, there's Busted Rhymes. I mean, you always ran into somebody down there. Yeah, yeah, downstairs, yeah. downstairs was where it was at. Yeah. yeah. In the, in the, basically in the basement. That's what people understand. Yeah. We were in the basement of the restaurant, but they made it into a nice lounge area where, you know, unless you knew someone, you weren't going down. Yeah. No. They actually, first, we would go in with some people. We actually ate down there for like the first year that we were going there because we wanted to be more private. Because upstairs, you see how upstairs was. It was so busy. You'd run into anybody. Yeah. You know? That, the, the, remember, the tables used to be on top of the bathroom. Remember the bathroom in the back to the right? Tables yeah. were on top of the bathroom. You know what I mean? So, I mean, we did that. Il Molino. Any of these things that you hear these rappers talking about today, we did it. You know? Jay-Z's rapping about, you know, Rolexes and big face Rollies. Before they even were rapping about them, the jewelers would call us up and say, listen, we got these new watches in there called Big Face Rollies. They're oversized. Come pick them up. You know, we'd walk in. Yeah, give us all three. White, gold, yellow, if you watch, rose. If you watch one of my uh, early episodes, I indirectly launched Jacob the Jeweler's fame in New York City. Indirectly. Right. Can he cooperate too? Uh, I, don't, I didn't really follow his whole case. I mean, he went, you know what's crazy? He's making a comeback to Cardano. People forget about this guy supposedly was dropping in fake diamonds. No, I mean... Yeah, but listen, we, I, when it was a big thing, I went and bought one. I bought a black one with black diamonds. And I bought the one with, with all, yeah, and I bought the one with all the faces on it. They were like 35000 a piece. The regular one that everybody always wore with the, you got the extra bands. When I went and brought them to my jeweler, one, I was embarrassed. Two, he couldn't believe I did that to him. And then he looks at the diamonds. He goes inside the watch. He says, the movement was terrible. The diamonds were for gaze. He says, this watch is worth about $2,000. And it was brand new. I just, I just picked them up. On, when you opened the store on 57th Street. Remember this? You had yeah. the store on 57th Street? I just went and picked them up from there. They weren't worth nothing. I practically gave them away. 
after the fad was over, you can't even walk. How do you walk around one? You know, the fad was over. We were wearing, you know, Rolexes and APs. And, you know, we were, for guys where we came from, where I came from, I can't, I, we, I grew up dirt poor. A lot of these guys grew up with money in Howard Beach. So, they, you know, they knew the life a little bit better. But a guy like me should have just been saving his money because I came from nothing. And I was taking care of my sick father, my youngest sister. But you get caught up in that life. And, you know, people say, you know, all good things come to an end. Whenever something came to an end, we did something else. If it was extortion. If it was well, a when you went, if it was when you went to jail the first time, though, I mean, weren't you – wasn't that like a wake-up call almost? No, because that's what you're waiting to do. Because now you got to remember, I grew up under the Gotti regime. The Gotti regime, we lived by what he said. Don't trust the guy. Don't ever do business with the guy if he never went to jail. You got to go to jail or earn your stripes. To me, that was earning my stripes. 155 pounds I was when I entered Rikers Island. The only Italian on my whole block. I entered the Beacon. My classification was 27. I did the highest it goes is 30. I was in like one of the worst buildings, one of the worst houses. I waited about three, four months. And that's how I knew the guy on my case went back because they had me down as the kingpin. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I didn't say nothing at the time. Then all of a sudden, my classification changes. They put me in a better part of the building, which they call the projects. You're still locked in the cells, but everybody's there relaxing, doing time where I just came for three months of sleeping with my sneakers on because you don't know what's going to pop off. They're stabbing each other. There's red lights, meaning there's fights or stabbings, cuttings, beating up oh, COs. The place was insane. I was in uh, 13. It was insane. It was a blood house. It was, it was just insane. And then I finally, my classification dropped, like I said. That's how I knew somebody must have went bad on the case and told them this guy was just moving whatever this guy was giving them. You know what I mean? So once my classification dropped, I knew something happened. I wasn't taking it to trial after that looking for the best plea deal. So I hired a lawyer that, you know, I knew could uh, get me out on bail and get me a good plea deal. And uh, that's what happened. I went up getting out on a $300,000 bail. I had to put up uh, two houses and 30,000 cash. I hit the streets for about a year. You much better fighting a case on the street because they got you. They got you by the balls when you're in there. They, they think you want to take the first plea. You want to get off Rikers Island. It's one of the craziest buildings. All the buildings, you know, the building, they're all crazy. I, I spent a lot of time in a lot of those buildings. When I came home four years ago, I spent my first summer, I spent on the Rikers Island. You know, I just couldn't adjust yet to life being normal, you know? And the whole place was insane. I did a bullet. I did six months. I spent the summer there in, in 2014. I was all over that building. And uh, that's a place that needs to sink into the ocean. When I hear these people talking about reform, letting people out. Listen, they need, there's people in there, like with, I guess Jay-Z, he was advocating for that, uh, was that Khalif Brower story, that kid that really didn't yeah. do anything wrong, went home and hanging himself. There's a lot of people, in, listen, I'm not saying that there's people in there all innocent, but there's people in there that are being charged with things that are way above the crimes they committed. And they're getting no bail. They live in low-income areas where you can't even afford bail, even if they did give it to you. Can't make commissary. So you're fighting, you're cutting, you're robbing. It, it, the place, that's a place where God don't exist. People don't know what God and country means in a place like that. It's just so insane. So you, you, definitely, you definitely feel that the system is broken. I, I believe it's a broken system. You think, it's, you, you think it only makes people worse, not better. There's no, there's no rehabilitation. Yeah. I, I, when I finally got upstate, I made connections with guys from Washington Heights. See, I was the guy in the street that didn't like to beef with people. If I had a beef, it was hand-to-hand. Or if anything got serious, I sat on a guy. Baseball batted him. You know, I mean, like I, I, I did a lot of things smart when it came to things like that. 
But I was a guy who wanted to make friends with everybody because there's a potential dollar to be made with anybody. It's a smart I way to look upstate, at it. I met bloods that wanted to do business. What's that? That's the smart way to look at any type of yeah. business venture. You know? yeah. Unfortunately, you used it for illegal stuff, but, you know. Yeah. I Listen, I hooked up with Dominicans from Washington Heights. I was going, when I first came home, I was in Lincoln on 110 and uh, on West, West Central Park. I was going over on, when I would get a four-hour pass, I was going to 136 in Broadway, beating up with these Dominicans that I had met in jail. You know, these guys were moving cakes. They were moving pounds of tons of coke. You know what I mean? They had everything. So it's like, there's no, there's no, the only thing that is better than the feds is I, I did a lot in there. You know what I mean? I did transitional services. I worked. I was a porter. The feds got one program and it's a drug program and it knocks a year off your sentence. That's all they got. There's no learning. There's no schooling. There's no really places, you know, not a lot of jobs to work where you can make decent money if you got no money. So the state, there's a lot of things, but reform, I taught transitional services. That means I was teaching people right before they went home how to fill out applications, how to make a resume. And these guys spent 10 years, eight years, and didn't learn or change their lives even in a little bit. Because that's not what that place is. People are trying to stay alive. So what I want to do is this clarify timeline here real quick, just real quick. You got into things when you were younger. You start running around with made guys, right, in the mafia. Right. You don't necessarily get made yourself. Did you ever? You, you you did have a desire to though, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there was a few. I mean, it was it was tossed around. I'm pretty sure if uh, Ronnie one arm didn't get life and he came home because that was my guy. That's the guy I dealt with every day. His son was like I said, like a friend of mine. When he had, when there was a beef going around between the Bananos and me, which his son thought, and they went to him and they were like, "What's up with this kid? Who he's with you?" And in front of everybody, and people even couldn't believe it because we were friends. We were closer than being with each other. And he was so scared of Gene's boss, Ronnie G, that he told him, no, he's not with me. And all that Ronnie was trying to do was make a point because they were making a play for me. So Ronnie comes to see me. We're very close at the time and says, you know, I just went to see your scumbag friend. And he actually just told me you weren't with him. I says, what do you expect him to say? He's scared of you. He says, well, I'm putting a beef in. I'm going to send my uncle, who was a skipper at the time, his uncle Vinny, who I was very close with, and I'm going to put a beef in for you to, to have you come with us. That's not what I wanted. My loyalty lied with his father, which I knew was going to happen once I got back to his father in Lewisburg. He was going to flip the fuck out and say, this kid's my personal friend. He's in the streets for me every day, you know, you know going to see people that you can't see, you know what I mean, drug dealers and lowlifes and scumbags that owe them money and things like that. You know, we were friends, you know. I was at his bedside when he was getting hip surgeries and knee surgeries. I was there. Now, you know, did you kick money back away. to him? Would you, would you give him that? That was, a, that was our agreement. Well, we, it was an unspoken agreement. It was like, you're with me. You're my friend. You can do whatever you want. But when you're called upon to do a favor, you, know where, you, you know where you lie. And were you, I, like, were you, if, I ever had, if I ever had to kick a dollar up, if I ever had to give anybody money, I'd turn around and walk away from that life and tell everybody to go fuck them. So then, that, I'm just not that guy. If I'm out in the streets and I'm earning, I'm earning. You know, and that's one of the things that Al had told me that held me back. You know, guys are giving 500 a week. Guys are giving 1,000. Some guys are giving three to 10,000 a week. Those guys get made like this, you know. For me to get made, I know I was going to have to either be on a piece of work or do a piece of work. 
And the only problem, like I said, back then was, was Johnny a -Light. The guy was, the guy was a lunatic. Nobody wanted to go near him. Everybody made guys were scared of him, you know? And if, if it ever came down to it, it would probably have been me or him. And most likely I'm not, not, you know, not Dick Ryan, but it probably would have been me. He was more seasoned with the guns and sitting on people and going after people. That was I mean, you, were, you, you, you obviously dealt with some of the lowest levels of society, right? You dealt with violent yeah. people. I mean, that, am I yeah, assuming you were, you, you, you were a violent, violent guy yourself? When I had to be. I didn't put it on Front Street. I wasn't known for that. But I was known that if you did step up or you did try to take what I had, you had a serious problem coming your way. You know, a lot of guys I dealt with. Uh, listen, I had a friend of mine who I played in the sandbox with that set me up to be killed, and I didn't even know. I walked into a room. This guy was actually partners with Johnny A-Light in a business. The guy put a Tech 9 in my chest. Just, he actually thought I was selling drugs on a low level, like I had a bar selling 20 pieces in grams. He had no idea I was pushing weight, you know? And uh, the same kid that set me up to be killed, this guy puts a gun in my hand like a year later and tells me, I got to go clip the guy. He's no good. I says, well, you knew he was no good when he told you about me and gave me up to get clipped. And this is a kid I played in the sandbox with. I would never did it. Six months later, they wind up clipping him anyway. So that 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 never came that never came to a head. So that was good. Uh, actually, when Gene and them were on the street, they actually got an order to clip the same kid. You know, what I mean, they had paperwork on him. And I wasn't home at the time. I just found out about this recently. But if I was home, I didn't care if the kid was bad or not. I played in the sandbox with him. I wasn't gonna let it happen. You know, same thing happened. A piece of work came up missing. And an uncle of mine through marriage, he was a crackhead. He got high and a piece of work went up missing under his watch. And they sent for me to bring him in. They wanted to stab him. I said, yeah, okay, I'll bring him in. Like, that wasn't me. Like, you ain't, you're going you're gonna to beef, you're going to beef with me. And they really didn't want to, you know. They didn't want, because they knew I was willing and ready. I just didn't because I'd rather be friends and make money. That's what I was known for. But they knew I wasn't going to take no shit laying down. I never got abused. I went to sit downs with horses and consigliers and skippers and by myself. These guys never even stuck up for me. I did it all on my own. You know, when Ronnie was running around the neighborhood like a maniac, I just got home from jail. I didn't even know he was beating all my friends up. These guys were made guys and captains. He was running around abusing them. And I couldn't have that because then that makes me look bad. And I just got done before I went to jail by this guy's father that I had to watch out for his son. I couldn't have no, like we were, we were the crew. You know what I mean? I couldn't let that be. And then I remember he was one of the first guys to see me when I came home from my state bed. And he's like, listen, I don't know if you heard, but I got a lot of problems with your friends. Because I, I shouldn't think that you would care because these guys were looking to throw you under the bus when they thought I was looking for you. They said you weren't with them. And then they sent a message back when we tried to pull you over with us that his father says you're a friend of his which we still don't know to this day what that means. So I just, are we going to have a problem? That's what he says to me. Now, I didn't know what was going on yet. And I was like, no, why would we have a problem? He was like, all right, good. He leaves. I wound up running into these guys. My parole officer was the same parole officer as Al, so we, he wanted to keep his distance from me, which he played the sissy move, tried to say I got pinched for drugs, didn't want me around, didn't take care of me when I was away, and th that was his money I was collecting. They wind up, they wind up becoming... He was no, and this is a guy, his first million dollars that he made, I counted the first 300,000 of it with him. You know what I mean? Like, that's how close we were. Like, the, his first million, I was there. 
when we counted it. I counted the first 300,000 with I know where he put it. I know where he hid it. If I wasn't close to him like that, or the rumors that I was running away from a body or I was robbing, I didn't need to do any of that. I know where these guys kept hundreds of thousands of dollars. I know where these guys kept millions of dollars. I could have went in and robbed the wise guy anytime I wanted if I needed money. But that's not who I was. I could say my friends. And the whole time, they considered me an asset, not a friend. So I go see him. I find out what's going on. I went to the place where they got abused. It was a barbershop. I spoke to the guy in the barbershop. He told me it was looked terrible for these guys. He wanted to fight all of them. They all backed down. So now I went back to him, and he's out on bail. So I got to go to backyards and everything else. Now he's acting skipper at the time. He's out on a medical bail, which they call medical bond. And I go see him. I said, listen, I can't have this. You know these guys longer than you know me. He's a skipper. The other two are wise guys. I'm the only guy that's not made, and I'm friends with you, but I can't have these guys getting abused. You know them your whole life. Let's put this to bed. Now, this is me. I'm not even a made guy. And I'm going to a skipper in the Bonanno family to squash a beef with a skipper in the, in the Gambino family. So he says, listen, bring them around. We'll talk, and we'll end this. Now, I go back to the social club. I grab Al. We go through the backyards. I bring them to Ronnie's house, and that's where the beef stopped. No more trouble. He wouldn't pick on them no more. He'd stop abusing their guys. He'd stop abusing him. And that's me, who ain't in your crew. Well, in your crew, but I'm not with you, which I'm glad because that would have been embarrassing if I was ever with a skipper like that. And I'm here squashing beach between two different families and their skippers at the time. One's an acting skipper, one's a skipper. So where do I fit in this? I'm not even a made guy, and I'm putting this to bed. Because Ronnie, who is a stand-up street guy, didn't want a problem with me out of all of them. And to this day, I still respect him for that. That's the way the guy was. I know he did a lot of terrible things. He sent Gene on a lot of terrible things, which I wish he never even took that route. I tried to get Gene started as a kid in another business. He was just a wild kid, and that's where he was going to end up, doing things like that. But my crew wanted him. The Genovese crew wanted him. And he was loyal to, the, to Ronnie, which I can't believe he did that to him because I knew Ronnie a long time. And to me, he was never like that. We had beef over the years over bookmaking and Shylock money, and we shook hands over things. We never had to – it never came to that. You know, I beat up one of his guys in front of a place that was around the Gotti's, La Villa Pizzeria. Kid owed me money. The guy was with him, but he told me he wasn't. Broad daylight, he was ducking me for like 10000 I went to work on him in front of another made guy that was with Ronnie. They didn't do nothing. He winds up getting mad at me. We wind up squashing that beef, shook hands. Never a problem like these guys had with him. And – I. You know, that was a serious thing I did. I beat up one of his guys in front of a guy that was made with him, which that's a no-no. In broad daylight, in front of a place that the guy that owns the place was roommates with John Jr. up at, you know, camp, wherever they went to school. So, uh, now you knew, you knew all never these guys personally? I mean, like, you, you met, like, the Gattis, John Gotti, John Gotti yeah, Jr. absolutely. You would yes. see them at functions? I, very, I mean, weddings? I, very, I mean, like, paint the picture yeah. a little bit. Well... The guy is really not at too many weddings. Uh, Peter wasn't a guy that really was involved in the life, and Peter was my friend. Peter was more like a street guy. He used to like to box and go to the gym. He was the youngest one, the one that never got in trouble. I knew Junior through him. Uh, Junior's best friend, which was Johnny Burrigero, great guy. Always tried to steer me. He always told me to get out of the life. He's dead now. God rest his soul. One of the, he's probably one of the best guys I've ever met in general. Legitimate guy, went to work every day. Even a guy, he still went to work every day. And he would always point me, listen, take your money. He knew I was involved. I wanted to get involved in junkyards. 
another friend of mine, Joey Stabile, who had got killed, was actually mentoring me when I first started making money to open up a junkyard. He was involved in the junkyard business. And then when he died, that kind of went to, you know, that got to put to bed. Then I got close with Johnny Boy, and he would tell me, his cousins, his brother, they were all involved in the junkyard business. Listen, get out of this life. Those, you're too involved. You're a street guy since you're a kid. You know, they knew me, you know, they knew me since I was young. He was like, just go to work. This, this, is, this life's, just go to work. That's all he kept telling me. Listen, you'll make more money. Get away from these guys. You know, and this is a May guy. We were at a wedding up in the Bronx. Some May guy's daughter or something. And I tell you, half the weddings and funerals that you go to, you don't even know the people. You know, it's just that you go out of respect for whatever Where were you? The Eastwood Manor? No, what's that? Well, the one by Throgs. The one on the water, Bronx. Throgs, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, you have the same last name of that famous catering hall over there on the uh, on, uh, Yeah, actually, Cross I, I got married there in 2000. That's where you got married at Russo's on the yeah. Bay? Big way, yeah, uh, 350 people. You guys related or just, or just? No, 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 same relation, same. no relation. No relation. Happens to be a really nice guy, too, Frank Russo. Yeah, I've had a few cousins. That whole family, his brother George. I got engaged at his brother George's place, Villa Russo, <laughs> three years prior, which was a beautiful party. And then I had my wedding there, which was another phenomenal party, you know? 350, everybody was there. We had a great time. Just one big party. Uh, it was funny because I had like 30 guys in my wedding party. I had bookmakers, Shylock, drug It's a great place, man. Beautiful guys. place. Yeah. Oh, fun. listen. If these people knew about the place, like celebrities, and they, they would get, that's where they would have the place. First of all, there's nobody that does catering that has food like that. His food is phenomenal for a catering hall. It's like going into a restaurant and ordering a, a real authentic Nobly Don dish, eating there. Never had a bad dish in that place. And we've been to a ton of parties there. Phenomenal. And he does everything top top notch there's no cutting corners so yeah no it's, that was a phenomenal place so you when you went in when you finally got your last time you were arrested what were you arrested for rico which i had no reason to be on the case the guy that brought everybody in i never even traded baseball cards with him didn't like him didn't trust him half the guys on the case didn't like him and trust him the problem was he was talking to two guys that was so jealous of all of us, they, he would tell them all his business. These guys would get on the phone or, and just talk for, and everybody knew this guy had a big mouth, so we used to avoid him. We'd, we'd go by the club, his car would be there, we would leave, because we know all this guy did was want to talk. But he got these two guys cornered, and they would talk, one was a coke dealer, and one winds up going away for conspiracy and murder, which they try to you know blame me for, and, He's on tape admitting to all his crimes, which, you know, the guy's a joke, but uh, he was involved in a serious crime uh, that they tried to put on me with them. And this guy I hated more than anybody. He was my ex-brother-in-law. And uh, the judge even abused him. But he was on tape talking about everybody else's crime. What are you telling a guy? If me and you don't get along, me and this guy don't do business, you're telling this guy wants to know how long I've been on the street, how I make my money, and you're telling them everything. Like, if you commit a crime, you talk about your crimes if you want to. You're not supposed to talk about any crime once you commit it, especially if you want to be a street guy, you know? And then this guy wants to run around calling people rats and this and that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This guy went to the grand jury. And when I came home from jail, I find out they're passing, they're passing his name around to be made. And Al who's supposed to be my friend, he's one of the guys that okays it. And you know this guy went to the grand jury. 
I'm like, are we like, what are we doing here? First, I'm no good because I stepped away from a global plate. Nobody got more time for what I did. Nobody got picked up on the streets for what I did. Nobody knows what I really did. But this guy went and testified at the grand jury, but because he got 23 years, that's okay. I lose my friends. I lose my family. My kids stop talking to me because now I'm labeled a rat. Now, don't get me wrong. Once you go in and you say anything, you want a global plea, you want a safety valve, you got to admit to the crimes that you committed with other people, whatever it is, you're no good. So I'm not sitting here claiming that I'm good. I'm no good from Jump Street. Once I walked out that room and decided not to do a global plea, but I was there for five months and I was listening to wise guys and skippers cry, cry. One guy was bunkies with me and he was a high ranking skipper. And he actually sat on the commission of the Gambino family for a while about his social security check. I told the hack in the box, let this guy go and I'll do an extra week just not to hear this guy cry anymore. I don't deal drugs. I told the guy one day, listen, you get money from this guy? You collect money from that guy? They're drug dealers. In the feds, you collect money from guys that sell drugs. You're a drug dealer. And this guy's telling me how he brings people to drug rehab. And this is a skipper. I'm so embarrassed for this life now that I'm not even out of the box yet that I'm disgusted. One guy passes out. Another guy passes out, supposed to be a street guy, big-time drug dealer, passes out in his cell and taking him out on a stretcher. I, I couldn't believe the things that were going on. It changed my whole perspective. I get out, and we all wind up meeting at church. They had church on, I think it was Wednesdays or Saturdays. And that's the only time you can meet all the other houses. I wind up ending up in Al's house. Al's bunking on a tier with guys that got three murders, seven murders, but they were all going in, meaning they were all telling. But these were guys that had no fear they never checked into witness protection. They were just guys that had murders and killed cartel guys. And most of his tier was Spanish because I happened to get into a big beef with them. And because uh, when I go to jail, I just start jailing. I'm buying people's numbers. There's only 300 minutes in the Fed, so I need more phone time. I wind up getting my visits and my phone time taken away after like my second week there. I get 90 days loss of everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm jailing. That's who I am as soon as I get there. Uh, I get the TV at two. What phone's like, I, I'm, these guys are made guys and skippers and they're sitting in the corner like this. It's like, no, that, these guys got to do something. So I want to get into a serious beef because of Al. He's, we used to pick each other's lunch up. So he jumps in the shower and he's running a little late and he screams, hey, Hootie, do me a favor. Grab my tray. It's uh, hamburger day. I says, all right, I'm not going to eat. You want mine? Yeah, yeah, grab yours too. So I go up to the line and I grab two trays. I walk upstairs, he gets out of the shower, I give it to him. One of the Spanish guys comes over to me that's on his tier and is like, listen, this guy said you took two trays. So I snap up real quick. Run, I put my sneakers on, I had shower shoes on. I was like, yeah, what's the problem with taking two trays? I was gonna sit there and say, you know, one was for my, you know, my co-defendant. Well, I'm like, what's the problem? He goes, well, you know, whatever food's left over, the Spanish keep for themselves. Now, I didn't even want it to begin with. And then, you know, Al challenged, oh, no, that was for me. Oh, I'm sorry. Forget it. You know, the apologies. I thought you would take an extra. So that kind of got me mad. So I turn around to Al and I say, listen, I says, I'm going to get this guy. I says, that's not going to fly with me. We'll be considered punks for letting this guy walk around talking like that. He's like, oh, you're crazy too much with the politics. And just, like, he just didn't want to get into it. 
So it was like eight o'clock at night. We don't lock in till 10. Everybody stays out of their cells because they lock the door. You don't want to, you want to stay out as long as possible. Now this is in Rikers, right? No, no, this is the feds. Okay. This is where we all got pinched. MCC. Yeah. So I go back to my cell. I get, I get uh, sweatpants on. I take off my jumpsuit, tie my sneakers up. I run back to Al's cell. He was with a kid that was on Danny Marino's case, was Danny Marino's co-defendant, another sissy. They got the lights shut off in their cell. They're both facing the wall. I'm banging on the door. It was five minutes later. They were acting like they were in a dead sleep because they didn't want to go with me to fight these guys. This is a guy who's a skipper and supposed to be running the show. This guy didn't want to come out and fight with me. Now, not only we didn't meet in jail as Italians and we got to stick together, we grew up, now we're, we're, we're together 20-something years now. And you're sitting in your cell. I ran right up on the guy by myself, went to fight him. And the kid that had came over to us, he was a high-ranking line. He had like two bodies. They just brought him from Florida. He was a high-ranking And he what? knew we were there. We had like 50 co-defendants. He was a high-ranking Latin king, but oh. he was high-ranking in telling. He was a big informant. He had two bodies. He was involved in a lot of things. And uh, I ran right up on him. And this guy, no, 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 he cut me off, please. We don't want no problems with you guys. Everybody's here to make money. They were selling. They had a legitimate person, a civilian that worked upstairs that did paperwork. This guy had her, and she was the connection. They didn't want to ruin it. And Al was buying cigarettes from them, a phone call. He didn't want to buy a cell phone because that's an extra year on your sentence. Anybody gets caught with a cell phone in the, in the feds, you get an extra year added to your sentence. They were selling cell phones. We had Italian bread. They were selling McDonald's Happy Meals. Like, this lady was bringing stuff in for this guy. I guess she was in love with him. I don't know what it was. She was the one that actually spread the word that I went bad when they took me out of the cell. But no one knew it was because someone was on a tap line calling me a rat. And they thought my life was in danger. Somebody's wife got on the phone and said, Hootie's no good. Don't trust them. So that was recorded. They packed me up. I was on a visit. They packed me up when I got back from the visit. Al, was, Al comes out of the box now because he wants to get pinched with cigarettes now, like a month later. He's my bunkie. And that's where everything went bad. He's on top. Well, like I said, the whole thing breaks out. Al and his bunkie stay inside. They don't come out to fight. I look behind me. The Crip kid with that I was bunking with was the only kid standing behind me. But they didn't want no problems because they were selling cigarettes, drugs, sleeping pills. They had This civilian was bringing everything in. I think she got fired. I think they found out about her. Because that whole tier was all people that were cooperating, except Al, which I couldn't understand because he knew the whole tier was, was cooperating. And you're a skipper. What are you doing hanging out in this tier? Because the rest of the tiers, he used to say I lived in the projects. They were shit. This tier was like, they had the best floors. They got to do whatever they wanted. They got special privileges. So after that, he goes to the box. He gets caught with cigarettes. Now he's in the box. I'm collecting cigarettes that he's owed. A pack here, a pack there. And I would take three or four out of the pack. This is how, this is how bad this guy got. And I would, I would use it for trade. Because trade, now I'm on 90 days. 90 days, no calls. 90 days, no packages. 90 days, no visits. Nothing. So I was trading the cigarettes for phone calls, for tuna, for meals, getting my laundry done. When he came out of the box, he didn't complain to me. He had the balls to complain to somebody else. Oh, you know, there was always three cigarettes missing. The pack was always short. I'm like, this guy's supposed to be my friend. What are you crying about? We were cooking and eating together before you went to the box. We shared everything. I'm on 90 days restriction. 
I can't get nothing. You're going to complain about three, four cigarettes missing because I was using them for trade. This is how bad he started to get. So now he's my bunkie. He gets, comes out of the box. We're going to bed one night and I tell his co-defendant, which is my friend Rock, I say, listen, for you, I'll take the 10 years. It was a 10 year mandatory minimum now because I already beat the career criminal. But I never sold drugs for the Gambino family. The problem was that I was a drug dealer. I did traffic marijuana. I trafficked cocaine. I put work in, but I was friends with his father and I would do collections. I would go strong arm guys. I would beat guys up that did that older money. So that put me into the Rico case. Even though I haven't earned money since 06 and I got pinched in the, since 05 really, and I got pinched in 2011. So I, I wasted all my money that I had buried that whole time because I wasn't earning. I was out on bail. I did a two flat. I was on work release. Then I was on a year post. And then I was just getting on my feet in 2010. I opened up a bookmaking office. I was starting to do good. And we got pinched in 2011. And I was wondering, they even said in the co-defendant meetings, what are you doing here? You have no business. But it was because I find out later on, 400 hours of tapes, I'm not on one. Not one wiretap, not one piece of evidence, me never talking about drugs. It, it, the whole thing was just insane. But this is what happens in a conspiracy and in a RICO case. They can wrap you up for one conversation. And that's what happened. I had a conversation and I, I want to stop here for a moment because I think this is a very important point here. This message goes out to young people that are out there. Yeah. You could just be hanging out with people in that life. You could be making a joke. You could be making a joke about something. You're not even doing anything. You're not selling drugs. You're not killing people. You're not robbing. You're not doing shit. You're just hanging out with them, or maybe you're just even related to them. And you could go down and do time for something. What what they're doing now, Beck, is they're bringing in Latin Kings, Batias, which is the Dominican gang, Bloods, Crips, because they they have no more Italians to lock up. So they're using the Rico case against gangs. So now that there's no more... The gangs don't go to Rikers Island anymore and do state time. The feds picked them up. So I'm with this young kid, black kid, nice kid. He was working for the Dominicans, and he liked Jordan sneakers. So he would go on the corner, make 300 for the day, and go home twice a week. So he had a little pocket money, and he was able to buy the new Jordans that came out every week. This kid gets a 10-year mandatory minimum for selling hand-to-hand. <laughs> this is what they're doing. So anybody that wants to know, just go online. They got parents against mandatory minimums, meaning like you sold one piece of crack in that organization, you're going to get wrapped up with them and you're going to get 10 year mandatory minimum. That's exa- that's what that comes down to. And you don't want to play around with the feds. It's no more. You go to the state, you do a bullet on Rikers Island, or you get a year in a day, you go up, get a number, come back down on work release. It, that's it. They're locking up gangs. They're locking up crews because there's, there's no more organized crime to lock up. I mean, they still have it, but now they're using that RICO. These guys come into the feds. They don't even know where RICO is. But they're like, I sold crack for three months. Why am I getting 10 years? And that's how it is. They did a direct sale a certain amount of time to an undercover cop, and now the kid's getting 10 years, and you don't have a dollar to his name. And that's little, what they're doing. It's a, little, it's a little excessive, especially for those little guys. and It's fucked up. And I've seen guys copping out 5 to 40s for heroin, guys that want the corner selling heroin. You know, it's five to 40s in the Fed, meaning you go in front of the judge and you take a plea. You say, I'll take five to 40. Now, in the Feds, it's not up to the prosecutor. You can make a deal with them behind closed doors, and that's the time you get in the state. In the Feds, you could ask the prosecutor, and the prosecutor can recommend something to the judge, 
but it's up to the judge. So now you go in there, and the guy popped out to a 5 to 40 thinking maybe he'll get 10. The judge gave him 20. Prosecution Crazy. actually put in for 10, the AUSA, and the judge gave him 20. It's like what's going on now. Guys that beat – guys like little Dino from the Columbos, guys like Mikey White from the game, they beat their cases on the murder charge. They beat them. Spent all this money on lawyers, not guilty, very hard to do in the feds. They got a 90. And what does the judge do? Gives them 30 years for RICO, meaning the bookmaking, the hanging around, the, conspir- you know, the conspiracies. They got 30 years, and they beat their biggest charges because the judge can do whatever he wants. So you can't play around. The AUSA might recommend five years. And the judge might say, listen, I think this guy's a menace. He's getting 30. I don't care if he just spent a million dollars on lawyers and beat two murder charges. I'm giving him 30 because that's what the law says I can give it to him because of the RICO Act. So any of these young kids can just walk into a federal courtroom or go and get read the public knowledge of the, the Information Act and see what people are getting for sitting on the corner selling crack these days. It's not no more state charges. If you're part of the Bloods, the Crips, the Batyals, the folks, and all these other gangs, this, the feds are taking you now because they need cases. They need to be locking people up. They have their own gang units now. They have their own people that know about that stuff. And like I said, when I went in, I couldn't believe it. I thought I was going to see. No, I did. I mean, I would have met a lot of guys from Massachusetts, a lot of, you know, Genovese guys, these guys, Lucchese. But there was Bloods. There was Batyals. There was Kings. And I'm like, why are all these gangs here? And I, I found out guys on the corners getting 10 years. The big homie who runs the crew is getting kingpin status, 20 to 30 years without committing a violent act. Which that's, what they did to my, to, that's what happened to my cousin. He got 20 to 30 charges of kingpin. Nonviolent. This is what they did. I think they, they gave him 30 or life. The guy, uh, Big Meats from the BMF. Big Meats. The guy didn't get um, charged. And he got, yeah, Big Meats, the guy from the Black Mafia family that got all the rappers started, oh. Young Jeezy. Yeah, early on. Puffed, his brother just now, came home. What about ecstasy, off. man? You you were pushing the pills and stuff. What about ecstasy, man? You were you were nah, in your I prime didn't at that age. With that. You were scared of the counts because yeah, there's fucking was cool. No, no, right? it just it was a thing I didn't know about. Guys were pressing them. Guys were selling fake ones. I just got out of the mescaline and acid stage, like in ninety three, ninety four. I stopped messing around with that stuff, and then ecstasy came along, like ninety five, ninety six, with the raves and. I just, guys, were, I know there was heroin in it. Guys were ODing. Guys were taking too much. Girls were getting addicted. I just didn't want, when I came home and found out about what opioids were doing, I never went near another pill. I wouldn't sell pills no more. They're frying, guys. They gave Peter's son, who was my friend at the time, eight years for the same charge that I got two years for, 10 years later. You know what I mean? Like, things are getting really serious. People are ODing. People are getting you sick on these things. You mentioned that your kids don't talk to you. None of my nobody. I, friends. Family, how many? How many I kids do you have? Person. I have three. How old are they? If you don't mind me asking. They they uh, teenagers. They seventeen and fourteen. When's the last time you spoke to them? On the visiting room floor in the feds eight years ago. Have you tried any 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 Absolutely. contact? Absolutely. And they just they just they don't they don't want to talk. No. You know what it is, brother? I have friends in similar situations. And at that age, bro, you know, first of all, they're in the hands of whoever's watching. So, again, your kids are at that age where, first of all, they're in someone else's hands. They, you were away. You don't know what kind of thoughts they put into their mind. I think when they grow up, they're going to, I think they'll come back around. But that's definitely got to be hard, bro. 
let me, you know how people talk about, I heard a few questions being asked about when you're doing box time, what do you think about? What do you regret? I don't regret the street. The street raised me. I had guys telling me to go in the right direction. No one ever told me to go in the wrong direction. I just followed. That's what that life was about. You see it, you follow. I was never peer pressured. Like they used to show, you know, things in school, guys passing you the drugs. When I grew up, if you didn't put in on it, guy wasn't for you to drug. Guy wasn't trying to peer pressure you. It was more for them. You know, we grew up in the hood. People didn't have money. They didn't want to share their drugs. Like you've seen these after-school specials. Come on, just try it. No, that stuff didn't happen. And it was the same thing. Yeah, the same thing in the streets. Guys didn't say, come over here. Once they found out you were a street guy, like I said, you know, the Bananos wanted me, but I was with the game. Then guys want you around their crew. You know what I mean? Ronnie wanted me around his crew to protect his son. And also he knew I'd go into the neighborhoods that they used to do business in and I would still do work in those neighborhoods. You know what I mean? So that's what they used me for. But when you was in the box, what I think about, I made all this money. Did my kids have enough? Did I take them to Disney? Did I take them away? I didn't mean their mother didn't get along. So if they went on vacation, I would send them. I wouldn't go with them. Uh, I picked them up from school. So I thought I was the greatest father in the world. I took them to school. We had dinner every night. We went, went places on the weekends, but then you start thinking about all the things you didn't do, vacations. Uh, you know, could have lived a better life, could have moved out of the neighborhood, could have bought a house anywhere I wanted at the time, and I decided to live in that neighborhood. You know, those are the things that when I was doing box time, and the second woman that I was with for a long time, who has my son, she said something to me a long time ago when I was young. She says, you keep doing the right thing for the wrong people. And that's going to come back to bite you in the ass. And there couldn't have been a more true statement because when you're locked up, the people that came to visit me, I couldn't have, never did anything for them. Didn't even expect them to come visit me. Certain friends I never thought would come see me, came to see me. I got letters from people I never thought I'd get letters from. But then all the people that I was making money with in the street, that I was protecting, that I helped out of trouble, that I was moving things for, that you I helped them your collect life. money. But risk your life. My freedom. Your life you really don't care about. Because where did you come from? What did you have? What was my life worth anyway? You know what I mean? I came from an immigrant family. I grew up in a tenement house with mice and roaches as my pets. You know what I mean? Like, I came from nothing. But your freedom, and then I always said I wouldn't have kids. Your freedom's your most important thing. You want to, now you have kids. You bring them into this life. To bring them into this world, which I never wanted to do. And I wind up doing it anyway, twice. I'm glad they're here now, but I would never want them to see this life or see me like this person. And I thought I was the greatest father in the world. You know what I mean? I take care of my kids. I don't let nobody watch my kids. I school them. I teach them about the old school. They don't play on the computer. I got them out in the street playing. Like I thought, but in all actuality, now I'm in the box and doing all this box time. Those are the things I thought about, not how I should have changed my life, how I should have did this better, how I should have did that. I was a street guy. There was no, I didn't want to play shortstop for the Yankees. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a doctor. When I was a kid, if you would have asked me, we had a thing. When we got made, what were we going to say? Like, these are the things we talked about as a kid. Me and one of my very close friends who's made now, we used to watch the movie called Arthur with Dudley Moore. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Old comedy guy. 
wind up dying broke, living in Marlon Brando's house. English guy, great show, goes back to the 80s. And uh, at one part of the movie, his grandmother keeps trying to make him marry a certain woman, and then he can inherit the family's fortune. And when he finally decides to give in, the butler or whoever the guy was to her says to him, congratulations, you're a very rich man. And Velvet Moore turns around and goes, that's all I ever wanted to be. And we used to say, when we got made and they say, congratulations now, you're one of us, we would have said, thank you, that's all I ever wanted to be. Because that's all we ever wanted to be. Like, I didn't want to drive a truck. I mean, my father was a carpenter, an electrician. I never learned how to use my hands like that. You know, I seen the guy work seven days a week, 12 hour days, and we had nothing. We ate meat twice a month because we, we didn't live like everybody else. You know what I mean? I got sneakers once every 18 months. You know, I got my first pair of Jordans because I had to go out and buy them. Like, so I wasn't going to live like that. You know, that line in the Bronx tale, which is awful about the working man being a sucker. I believed that for a while because I didn't see anybody working, making money until now where you could get a civil servant's job. You could become a CEO in the city without, with a high school diploma. You could work for the Long Island Railroad. You could work for mass transit and you can make a hundred thousand a year. Those opportunities weren't around. Do you think that you're reformed? Do you think that you'll ever go back to your old ways? I mean, can you honestly I'll never say commit that? a crime again. Why, because, why can you be so sure? Why are you so confident? Uh, maybe a, maybe, a, maybe uh, an assault. Oh, I'll never say I'll never go back to jail. You never say that. That could always happen. What I'm saying is I'm never going to go out and sell. I didn't rob and steal. I mean, I beat drug dealers. I, I robbed, but I never robbed and stole. My thing was selling drugs. Shylock and money, extortion, and bookmaking. I can open books tomorrow and have 10 guys on my sheet making money. It's just something I will never get involved in again because I'm purposely putting myself in the way to go to jail, and I'm not going to do that. I could be killed, and I have nobody. I can't even date because anytime I meet a girl, it's either a one-night stand or it doesn't work out because I can't tell her who I really am. And I'm not a guy who does that. And I haven't even had one night since I haven't really dated. I haven't really done anything because I have where I live now is so far away and off the map. It's like the sticks. If I would tell a lady or a woman or a girl at dinner who I was or what I did, they think I would have gotten it out of a movie. They would think I was a liar or they think I was trying to impress them with a street story. Or so now I go to work every day and that's the story I go with. And you know what? It's, I'm home four years. I really haven't dated. Because that's how, if you don't know me, and I'm not dating somebody from my past, how, how do you really lay down with a woman and build a relationship and she really doesn't know who you are? I have some people that I know, they come straight out and tell every girl they meet. It's just not who I am or, or what I want to be. So that's, that's the hard part. But, like I said, why I know I won't commit another crime. Listen, I got locked up five times my first year home. The judge had leanings for me because I wasn't selling drugs. I wasn't involved in organized crime. And that's where the career criminal came back to hurt me. The judge turned around and told the AUSA, you wanted to charge this guy for being a career criminal. Now you want to put him back in jail for getting in trouble. He's, the judge said it's a double negative because this guy doesn't know how to go out into the world and be a normal person. He's not selling drugs. 
He's not extorting people. He's running into people and he's getting into fights and arguments and disagreements. And he doesn't know how yet to calm that. I had three assaults. I spent three months on Rikers Island in 2014, that whole summer. It's like, you don't know. To me, everybody's still a civilian. Like I work in a regular business now where I got a 23-year-old kid telling me what to do. Not, you know, asking me what to do. He doesn't, and I got to listen to this guy because I need a paycheck to pay my bills. And it took me three years to build this. My first two years, I struck out. Couldn't get a job, background checks, any job that was worth making money at, I couldn't get because they did a background check. This is where the system fails fucking so people. So screwed man. by the federal government? Listen, I got so screwed by the federal government that they told me at one point, this case is almost over. Everybody thinks I went in and told, I was five months. The case, the plea deals were already on the table. They said, we could drive you back. I went to fight a case up in Orange County and I had a case in Boston. When I came back and I was actually fighting with the marshals at the time, I couldn't get along with them. I really wasn't dealing with the feds. And when I came back, the AUSA said, listen, Brett Barr, the guy that was in charge, the Muslim guy that Trump fired, I don't even know how they put this guy in charge of the Southern District. That's like the main stage of the world where they put people on trial all over the world. How do you put this guy in that position? He made me eat the whole indictment where the judge could have gave me a zillion years when I went in front of him. He says you either eat everything on the RICO Act. You know, I mean, they could have had bodies. They could have had everything on this. They made me eat everything. There wasn't one charge they would let me get away with. And my original, what they really wanted me to do, my original bid was 60 months. I got 60 months. They didn't take no time off. I wind up getting a year off because I finished that program. And I wind up doing three years. I did 36 months and came home. But when I came home, I get pinched and I go to Rikers Island. I had nobody to call. Now on Rikers Island, you can't do laundry. You got to take your clothes give it to your family and your family has to bring you up new clothes. I didn't have nobody. So I was washing my t-shirt and underwear and socks in the sink, but I was wearing a champion sweatsuit every day for three months that I couldn't wash. So now I thought that was rock bottom. No commissary, nobody coming to see me, nobody to call. I get out, no money in my pocket, nowhere to go. Homeless, broke and clothless with a Metro card. And where does that take you? only within the five boroughs. Where am I going? I have nobody. Now, that's rock bottom. Because I could easily went out and committed a crime and got money. I had a guy that I that was still friendly enough with that would have gave me a package. Because when I did finally run into him, he tried to give me a package and said, listen, get yourself started. And I gave it back to him and told him, this isn't what I'm doing. I had another guy that handed me 2,080 oxys, which I would have never gotten involved in pills again anyway, since I did the two years. Gave it back to him, says I can't do it. That's rock bottom. When I came home at 39 years old, 40 years old, and I had nowhere to go, couldn't commit any crimes because now I'm going to go back to jail, not have no family, not have no commissary, not have no sneakers. I'll be walking around in patakis, which was the state slippers, because now the feds aren't going to pick me up. They're going to let me let the state take care of me because it's not conspiracy. It's not organized crime. They let the state take those charges. And I would have just rotted away. That was rock bottom. That's where I said, I can't commit crimes anymore because I'll be alone. I've already lost the time. Maybe I can reunite with my son and 
you know, my, my second wife or reunite with my daughters and, and from my first marriage, maybe one day. This is what I thought. This was, you know, seven years ago. And I haven't committed a crime since. I started out making minimum wage working as a manager in a furniture store. And I've ne- these are jobs I should have had at 13 years old, 14 years old. I had to start from the beginning because they don't do background checks. And I worked my way up to making okay money for a guy who gets up and works nine to five just to keep a roof over my head. It's not. That's where I'll tell people, look what happens. You're called a rat. They don't even know what I did. I understand. Once you go in, you play queen for the day, you're no good. You're a rat. You're a stool pigeon. They can, they can name you. But they don't know what I did. None of these guys got new charges. None of these guys did extra time. Nobody on the street got picked up. I looked out for myself for once because I was in my cell. I got Al above me. I just got done telling Rock, I'll take seven, I'll take 10, whatever you need me to take. They knew I was willing and ready to go to jail. Then I got Al sitting above me talking about, I can't help you during this case. Now, I didn't ask him for help. But when you come home, Frankie Boy got arrested so fast. You and Frankie Boy are going to go in. I'm going to get you guys straightened out, which he was jerking my chain to keep me on the case. And I'm like, but I didn't ask you for nothing. I didn't ask because I had no lawyer at the time. I had nothing. I didn't hire a lawyer, nothing. No commissary. I was broke. Like I said, I wasn't on the street for three years. Now you're talking about you can't help me because you're helping other people. And we're supposed to be friends and you're my bunkie. And then you want to apologize because you found out that they robbed my money and the money I needed to save my house where my kids grew up was one week's card game for him. He says, I could have just gave you that money and paid the house. He was saying things just to twist me. And he didn't even know he was twisting me. And then I get taken. He's on the phone or another co-defense on the phone. One of their wives, one of their wives turn around and say, stay away from Hootie. He's no good. I haven't even had a lawyer visit yet. You're calling me no good? Now I'm sitting in the cell with these guys looking to blame people, captains, wise guys. Let's blame the guys that are on the tapes because I didn't listen to the tape chat. Let's blame the guys that are on the tapes. I'm in co-defending meetings. And yeah, Todd's talking. Let's put it all on Todd. Sal's talking. Let's put it all on Sal. The midget's talking. Let's put it all on the midget. Let's push all of it on them. They're the ones that are talking. They're the drug dealers. And I'm going, these are street guys. These are made guys. These are captains. You look, listen, we got pinched. I don't blame you at anybody. And I'm not taking it as you guys are taking it. Let's push it all on them. First of all, you know the guy went to the grand jury and you okayed his list to get made. That right there off the bat, I didn't go to the grand jury. I never told, I was talking, I never told my story to anybody. But this guy went to the grand jury and you okayed his list to become a made guy, never cracked an egg, and you want to make this guy a made guy, knowing he went to the grand jury. And now you want to push everything on him, saying it was him. He's the drug dealer. He's this. He's that. They just roped me in. I watched so much backstabbing going on. And then for him to sit around and turn around and tell me he had the money to help me save my house, and he didn't. And I just did two years for you, and I came home. I didn't take money from you. I didn't take a car from you. You just didn't have an envelope for me. He actually started avoiding me because we had the same parole officer. So, Anthony, what I'm hearing here and what, what people are, are listening to is basically the heartache you had after you got pinched, after you were arrested, the case, the people you thought that you were friends ended up not doing a damn thing for you in the end. You hit rock, rock, rock bottom when you finally got out. You've made up your mind to never go back down that path, even though you had the opportunities to present themselves. 
Absolutely. You've decided that you're never going back down that road again because your freedom in the rest of your life is more important than going back behind those jail bars just for a couple of dollars. Absolutely. I feel if you, I go back, they win. You lost your family that you love for now. You're hoping that one day your kids will know that you've changed. And I think if you stay on the right path, brother, and with enough time, they see how you've changed your life. I think that that's a relationship that will be rekindled and I, and I, and I, and I have a good feeling about it. It's going to take some time. It's understandable. They're still in those teenage years. You know what I mean? But eventually yeah, with time, I mean, listen, brother. That's, that's just something that's a, total, that's a story for another day. I'm not even no, no, thinking about that right now. You, you know what I mean? You, you, you work hard. My life right now is to get on track and stay away from that life. Because I've had a lot of people reach out to me that were on the case and said, I don't know what these guys are talking about. You know, you didn't hurt me. You're okay with me. Or you didn't hurt me. You're okay with me. You know, a lot of guys that I heard actually sent me messages. You know, guys were more upset that you're never going to be around again than they are that, you know, you didn't, you didn't stay on the global plate. You know, that you played queen for the day. You know, mm-hmm. then you got a guy like Gene, right? Look at his case. There was six conspiracies to commit murder. An accessory after the fact and before the fact. There was five attempted murders. Six conspiracies for the attempted murders. There was three or four guys that planned it, and nobody gets charged. They're all genes a rat. Genes no good. Well, then who else is a rat? Because you shot six. You shot at six guys. You hit three of them. You conspired to kill six of these guys. Five of these guys. The sixth one got hit by accident. The attempted murder when Gene shot in that car that he got ordered to shoot in the car on the on the girls. How come nobody eats this? On my case, guys were getting nine, ten years just for hanging out with other guys. I got 23 years for conspiracy. Never even, never even did the murder. He's got six attempted murders on his case, and they're all looking at Gene like he's bad. Where's all these other guys that are bad? Because nobody on his case, I think the biggest charge was Ronnie. He got 14 years and a $1.5 million fine, and he was running the show. Not to say that Ronnie should have got charged with it, but whoever ordered these murders, the conspiracies, the murders, the guys that went to do the murders that froze on Gene, that's attempted murder. That's conspiracy to commit murder. That's 20 years in the feds. None of these guys have been taken in. And I see Gene getting all this. See, I'm not on social media, so I read his. And I see all this backlash. He's a rat. He put this one away. He put that one away. He put this one away. These guys were garbage pills. These guys were sitting on guys, shooting into, giving them orders to shoot into cars with women, but nobody gets that conspiracy. To, that's attempted murder. That's yeah, my whole driving thing, around my whole looking thing. for them is conspiracy to commit murder. My Why isn't anybody eating these charges? I have no idea, brother. And, and, and like I've said, my show is not, I don't just focus on criminals and crime and mafia. No, but my I know shows, you've had them on your show. I've had a couple, yeah, yeah. My, my show is about, no, of course, they have a lot of people that write a lot of, actually, I, I see a lot more positive than negative. Yeah. The only thing that people really had a problem with Gene on was that they felt like he was, uh, they felt like he was attacking Michael Francis, and they just well, that was know, another lot, bullshit story. I was a lot of people love the guy, and they, 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 you know, they feel like he was trolling on him, so they trolled back on Gene Morello. Yeah, for, listen, for that. I was around back then. I was young, but even when I got older, I knew the stories. You know what I mean? It was supposedly it was two hundred and fifty thousand, not a million, and there was four crime families involved. And the guy that he said went bad on him was the guy that invited him into the business. And then they caught him stealing. And why they let him go was they said, we'd give you your life, but 
but you got to walk away from the gasoline business. Who walks away from a million dollars a month unless they're going to clip you? That was Michael Frenchies. They said, you got to leave the business and that's the way you get away with your life. So there was a lot of people involved in that. I knew the Bananos weren't on the commission at the time, so they weren't involved in that. The Bananos were the only ones that were left out. The Lucchese's, the Gambinos, the Columbos, and the Genovese that were whacking that money up. And the guy who he always claims to be his best friend and his partner was the guy that brought him in. And then they found out that he was robbing Mike. And then they told him, you're out of the business and you get away with your life. That's what you do. You know, so I'm not going after Mike Frenchies, but the stories that you want to build yourself up and you want to put the suits on and you want to act like this and you want to act like that. You know what's crazy? His brother, Sonny's true blood, Johnny Frenchies. I know he got involved with drugs and supposedly he went bad, but that guy was a little bit of a nutcase when he was younger. So, you know, Gene, they, they got a good gripe with this guy, Mikey Frenchies. They don't like no, guys that are out there perpetrating who they are. Well, what I'm starting to notice is that people that have done a lot of the violence in this stuff, they seem to have, you know, feelings towards people that were maybe higher ranking members or made guys. But again, that's not really what my show is about. And I don't want to focus on any of this. I want to focus on the most important stuff that you've said to me today, man. Yeah. You know, you went in, I, from what I see, you were a little bit of product of your environment. I'm starting to see some similarities in your life, John's life, Gene's life. I hope one day I get to interview Michael Frances. I have spoke to him. And uh, I'm probably going to make a little video about what he said to me. And he basically said that he didn't know really who John Eli was back then. I, I got to go check the message he wrote me. Gene was born when I was already much older. Like I, Gene was basically born the day I was made, you know, like in that time period. So how could he know about my life, basically? He didn't say anything mean. He wasn't disrespectful. Uh, in any event... The most important thing from this session with us, brother, and what I try to show with these interviews, I'm not here to glorify mob life. I got plenty of family that went to jail, plenty of friends that have gone down. Uh, you know, hopefully my cousin, when he comes out, he'll tell his story. He was one of the biggest ecstasy dealers, if not the biggest in all of New York City, period. And he did about 20 years to life. He was betrayed by his best friend. What I am here to exaggerate and what I want people, hopefully that young person, who still hasn't been pinched, who still hasn't gotten in trouble, who still hasn't lost the most valuable asset in his life, time. I want them to understand that when I spoke to you today, that maybe they didn't have opportunities either. Maybe they grew up in the hood. Maybe they felt like they had no other choice. But eventually, if they notice in all these other interviews that I've done, it never, ever ends well. Ever. Well, what they could take with my message was I was friends with these guys. We slept in the same bed together. We ate out of the same dishes together. So if guys like that, a little jail or money is going to change them, then there's nothing out there for anybody. Because you got guys turning on you in the life because that's what they're supposed to do. That life comes first. But when you're friends with somebody and you guys are sleeping in the same bed together, eating the same food, dating the same girl, Families are going out together, barbecuing together. That's a little different. And for them guys to turn around and hide in their cell when you got into a fight or throw in your face that they had the money at the time to help you and they did it, even though you didn't ask or promise you that you'll be made one day when you come home, when it should have been done already. These are the things that people That's should listen so to. The, that these no are your loyalty. friends yeah, and they're no screwing loyalty. you over. Treachery. 
in the end. And amongst and friends, just, and these just guys were my wedding up. party. I was in theirs. You know, and we watched our kids grow up. Our kids play together. We babysitted our kids, christenings, birthdays, vacations. We did it all together. This wasn't just the life. I was with Al the day he was going to get straightened out. Like he knew the day he was going. Came to my house. You like my suit? How do I look? I'm finally going to get it. Like I was friends with them before, pre-gangster and post-gangster. You know what I mean? Which I wouldn't even call them gangsters because I got to go back many years to call guys gangsters. You know what I mean? But between you and me, I heard Al got shelved. And in 2020, the way the mobs run now, that's the type of guy you make a boss. He earns money. He does his jail time. He keeps his mouth shut. And that's the type of guy in 2020 that you make a boss. He's not a street guy. He's not good with his hands. He's not going to run around and put work in. But he's earned his spot. He was already a captain. He's going to live off that reputation. And he makes money. And he went to jail. There's nothing else you can expect from the guy. Even though he said some things he shouldn't have said, dry rat things. So that's why they shelved him. So a lot of things he said in court, a lot of things he said to me, a lot of things he said in cold defending me. To me, those guys are dry rats. The guys that are trying to stab people in the back and have them do more jail time than they're doing. You know what I mean? But nobody talks about that. That's why I was trying to bring up Gene's case or John's case. Like, guys don't know. John was looking at 20 years the whole time. They're saying John only got 10 years. I knew John's case. I followed it. They weren't coming down in Florida. Florida wanted him to do 20 years. The 11th hour, they finally gave in and said, okay, he could do the 10th. Not even 10th. I think they said 15. And then he wound up getting five back. So John went in knowing he was doing 20 years and spent a lot of his time in the worst prisons in the world. It's like I hate when people tell stories about guys that they're rats and they're no good. They came out. They're making their life better. You're sitting behind closed doors with million-dollar lawyers going, let's blame that guy, and you're a skipper. Or, I, ne I, I never collected drug money. I, I, why am I a drug dealer? And you're a skipper. You're here. You signed up for this the day you got your button, to go to jail and to die in this life. Why? There shouldn't be any complaining. As soon as the first time you complain or point the finger or blame on somebody, you're a rat. You're no good. Just because you heard that John Jr. is no good or Johnny A. Light's no good doesn't give you the right to stand up in court and blame everything on them. That makes you a rat. I don't care if, if there's new rules to this life because I was there when they set the new rules. When, when my Mikey Scars took over and he was pulling John Jr.'s strings and telling him no more social clubs, no more weddings, no more funerals, no more clear socks. Nobody wears sweatsuits no more. They try to revamp the whole American Cosa Nostra. I was there when this all happened. And they try to change the whole life. And now, if guys are no good, supposedly, you could go in court and talk about them. Or you could get up to make your time better and admit that you're a gangster and you're part of Cosa Nostra. That's a rat. Just because the judge is going to give you five years less? Old school guys would have been like, no, I'll take the extra five. But now today they go in and admit, I'm a part of the Gambino crime family. You're not a rat. You're not, you're not playing queen for the day. Only guys like us that don't want to take global pleas, that want to save their lives because you, you stabbed them. You know, they got stabbed in their back pretty bad, as I felt I did by my friends. Not guys in the mob. Not guys that I sat down and did. Did you actually shit. have to testify? Did you testify against your friends? No. 
No, I never, never even, got to that point. I never, it, wouldn't, it, it wouldn't even come down to that because I never signed any paperwork to do that. My last question, and we're going to close it off, brother. Any interactions with other, like you said, you dealt with Dominicans, blacks. I mean, John Eli was one of the Albanians. Any interactions with the Albanians? I mean, what was the mood like with them? And what was, When I what came was... up, the Albanians were warring with the guys in the Bronx. They were killing each other every day. They actually went into a lot of the social clubs and threw a lot of the Italians out. Fernando guys, Gambino guys, Genovese guys. And these guys just didn't even want problems with them because half the time they went by fake names. You know, guy's name is Tony, but his real name is something else. And they'd shoot a guy and go back to their country. Like, they, they, it, was, it was very, very wild, and they couldn't be trusted. I'm not saying anything against the Albanian community. John is one of the most trusted guys I know now that, you know, we're a little bit friendly. But even in the streets, you know, he took care of his crew. Guys that were around him made money. I wasn't, but I know that, you know, he was that type of guy. But my experience in dealing with the Albanians got stabbed in the back a lot. They you were avoided, up you the avoided, at the time. You avoided, you avoided doing business with them? Yeah, absolutely. And violent? the truth of the matter were they is, they violent, very violent, very violent, very violent, violent. They, they, that was, they were like the, they were like, I would call them super Russians because the Russians were very violent. They were out in the open, violent. Like they were extremely violent for no reason. You know, no they, logic. They, they, guy. I think that Gene's friend who got shot when they when they put the hit on Gene, it was like four or five guys involved. They took ten thousand to do that. Who takes ten thousand to shoot like seven guys? Uh, they probably would have did it for free. You know, they're, they're a wild bunch. But me, I was a guy, if I didn't know you 20 years, I didn't do business with you. Everybody I did business with, I knew since a kid. So if I was going to get taken down, it was going to be by somebody I knew 20 years. And that's why I was never on a recording. That's why I didn't get pinched with evidence. And I've never got pinched on my own case. It was always somebody else's case I was on. And again, the lesson here is even if you do nothing, you can go down just for being around the wrong people. And that's Listen, the message I really want to When I seen these guys people. come in, on these RICO cases, these regular corner dealers getting 10 years, mandatory minimum. One, they don't got a good lawyer to fight it down the seven. Because you can fight a mandatory minimum down the seven. Certain points, you got to heist. There's things in the feds that you, you can get down with departures, they're called. You know, I was with one guy who got a 10-year mandatory minimum, and then he had two people come in against him, say he brandished the gun. They added five years. He got an upward departure. It wasn't down with departure. He got an upward. He got five extra years on top of the 10 on the mandatory minimum for brandishing a gun. Five years in the feds. So now it doesn't run the same with the 10. He's got to do the 10 and the 5. So now he's got 15. It's yeah. a, it's a, and this guy was a regular street corner drug dealer. There's a lot of Hobbs Acts, committing crimes with certain guns, carrying guns in certain places, serial numbers rubbed off the guns. You get more time for guns bought in certain places. If the gun was stolen from a, from a gun store, you get more time for that. Like this, there's so many things in the fact that these young kids out here have no idea with, like when they, when they pinched these rappers, like Bobby Smurder and these guys, and they put them in the – those guys had no idea what they were getting themselves into. The kids, six, nine, and all those guys. When the feds picked up that case, they had no idea. These guys thought they'd get three, four years, like state charges. That's what you probably would have got. Not with the feds. There's a million things they had on. You can't play around with them. How do you feel about that guy coming out now? He's breaking records again. I have some information I blame, about I blame some the, people. He, he wasn't – I blame the people he was around. They knew what he was. But they, guys like that that come from nothing, see money, most of those guys would have probably did hits for $500. Now you got this kid who you could extort making millions. So what'd you do? No one got killed. Nobody got hurt. They shot at a few people. Whatever they did, tied a few people up. No one, there was nobody really hurt. hurt but, but a lot of people went down on that one. A lot of people and went down. Took, because it was the feds and the conspiracy, it wraps everybody up in the RICO. 
and you have a kid here that you were extorting, sleeping with his baby's mother, robbing, tying up, that would have gave you his money because he just wanted to be down. He wasn't even a blood. He was never jumped in because he was paying them. So what would you expect? You got to know one day this guy's here. Like when we went in and we were spending money, like we were drug dealers when we weren't, my friend Rocky said all the time, they're coming like gangbusters to get us. We're all going down and they're going to charge us for being dope dealers because they were making so much money with bookmaking and Shylocking. It looked like they were junk dealers. Everybody, come on, they didn't sell. How I many people actually going? They weren't selling heroin? Come on, his, his clothing bill was 30000 That takes it, oh, he's got seven watch. No, the guy was a legitimate bookmaker, handicapper. The guy had a legitimate card game with legitimate guys, no street guys, that made 30000 a week. He had joker focus. He had six clubs. The guy was doing phenomenal without having to get involved in drugs. But we would sit down and say, one day they're going to come in like gangbusters, and we're all going to get pinched like we're dope dealers. And looking at this kid, that's what they should have known. Listen, let's make enough money because when they come, we're all going down. But they didn't think like that. And dealing with a kid like that, everybody thinks like that. First of all, he's not in your gang, and you're driving around shooting at people in front of him. You don't do no work or commit any crimes in front of anybody that's not part of your crew. Out of all the movies you've ever seen, which one do you think is the most authentic to represent that None life? None of them. None of them. Are there even bits and pieces? I think it's all bullshit. I think Al Pacino is probably one of the best. Robert De Niro, I think he's a garbage actor. I don't think he's as big as everybody wants him to be. I think Al Pacino's a character actor. He's done Broadway, Macbeth. And, uh, I mean, he's got the one terrible line in Donnie Brasco, which no wise guy would ever say when he says to Traficante. It's like meeting Mickey Mantle. You ever compare a wise guy to a sports athlete, they'd hit you in the head so many times, you'd forget your name. That's one thing wise guys hate. Don't consider them actors. Don't consider them baseball players. That's, they're against all of that. That was the one bad thing in the movie that he said. You know, it's like meeting Mickey Mantle. He would, especially a guy like Traficante. Not a, he's like a boss of boss. This guy ran countries and states and, you know what I mean? So you, you could never speak to a guy like that. But I don't think, I mean, the way he acted and like Carlito's way, the way he played an older Spanish guy. If you ever watch him act in that, you would say, wow, that's some good acting right there. But I, I don't think any of these movies are close. I mean, they try to get Joe Bonanno and, and The Godfather. So you think like bits and pieces, basically, then, of these movies well, have authenticity? Well, the true story about the, the Bronx there was a true story. I actually yeah. Bronx. That, that was a true story. Like, that really happened. And that was just like a regular neighborhood wise guy. It wasn't like a skipper or a boss. He was just talking about a regular probably just a guy, guy. Probably just a guy with has. a crew. Just a guy with a crew. Just a guy with a crew. Was you know, a wise guy and the rest of the guys were associates. That's all it was. And that's probably, you got to say, probably the closest to how old school the 80s were when I was growing up. One guy was a made guy, and he had 50 associates around that, ran numbers, took book, and took care of their neighborhood. Anthony, you gave us a peek into what life was like being pulled into that life. The ups, the downs, and what it means to come back out and try to have a second chance. We're all rooting for you. We hope to hear some positive things about you and your life in the future. We're looking forward to maybe you, maybe, you know, going into more detail, maybe some books. I know it's very hard for you guys to talk about certain things because there's still pending cases and all kinds of crap that's out there. And again, I'm not here to glorify that stuff. That's not what my show is about. But in any event, what I, why you're on my show is because you've made a promise to yourself that you're done with that life. You're trying to fix and move forward in a positive way. And you're trying to stop other people from, from doing what you did. Absolutely. 
just take it from me. On the one end of the street, the other end of being with wise guys, and the other end of being with friends. They all stood me. They all stabbed me in the back at the end. And even my legitimate friends that I had good jobs with that I could have went to work for, the, turned their backs on me in the end too. So it, it, this life doesn't help anybody. Nobody likes you in the end. They might act like they're your friends. You got to start all over and become a different person, even if you get that chance. Because these days, you get 30 years for hanging out with somebody. This is Beck Lover with Anthony Russo, a.k.a. Hootie. And we want to thank him for coming on the show and sharing this uh, information with us. And we, we look forward to maybe talking to you again in the future, brother. And we want you to know, no matter how life, how hard life gets, no matter how bad or how low you go, as long as you ha still have air in those lungs, you can always make a comeback. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate it. Thank you, Beck. I'll be talking to you. Have a great day. You got it.